You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church. All right, that's so encouraging. Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be in verses 7 uh, through 14 this morning. Before we turn our attention there, I want to say a very special happy Mother's Day to all the moms in the room. I was talking yesterday to my kids and just said, hey, don't forget that tomorrow is Mother's Day. And my son said, when's Father's Day again? And uh, I said, well, that's in June. And then my daughter, in a very defensive tone, said, well, when's Kids Day? <laughs> and what every mom in the room knows is that's every single day is Kids Day, meeting kids' needs and taking care of them. And so, uh, moms, you, you carry a unique uh, burden uh, that is filled with joy and filled with all the extremes of, of emotion. And so what I'd love to do is I'd just love to pray for you and, um, and, and ask God to be with you. And so if you're, if you're here and you're around, maybe your mom or you are sitting with uh, the mother of your children, would you just maybe grab their hand or put a hand on them and let's pray for them. God, we love you. And I thank you... Uh, for these women in the room who have uh, been entrusted with just a sober gift that someone in this world calls them mom. It's just such a meaningful thing. And so I pray a few things for, for these, my sisters, God. I pray that they would not underestimate how much they mean to their children, that they would not underestimate how much influence they have in the lives of their children, uh, that, God, it is... Uh, it is them and only them that can, that can play the role of mother in the life of their kid and teaching them and instructing them. And, um, I think of all the ways that we could see in Jesus' life the influence of his mother come out in his life. And, and just what a, what a joy, what an honor, what a burden to carry. And so I pray, God, that they would not underestimate how much they mean. I pray also, God, that they would not be overwhelmed by their own failures. There's, there's nothing quite like parenting. There's nothing quite as difficult, and um, especially as a mother, God, it seems like there is a, uh, a tendency to define how things are going more so by our failures and weaknesses than by anything else. And so just pray that you would remind these moms that there is power in their apologies and in their humility, and that we would hear again that our children do not need us to be Jesus. They need us to need Jesus, and that, uh, Lord, there is... Uh, are the, these mothers, Lord, do not need to be perfect, just need to be faithful and uh, repentant and humble, Lord. So give them the strength for that, Father. And then more than anything, would you remind them in this moment how much you love them, how much you care for them. I think about the image that Jesus uses in Matthew 23, how he said, I long to be, I long to gather you under my wings like a hen does her chicks. And so just that nurturing thing that you do, God, and that love that you have for them would be uh, known and believed. And then also, God, I'm mindful right now of those in the room uh, where today is maybe a painful day. Maybe today is the first Mother's Day without mom. Maybe today is another Mother's Day that is simply a reminder of those who don't yet have children or who can't have children or who have lost children. And just want to be silent for a moment in honor of them, God. And silent for a moment as a reminder to them that you are not silent in that pain. 
but you see and you speak. Lord, we love you. I thank you for their life. I thank you for their love. Would you bless them and be with them? Amen. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 14. We've been uh, in this section of the sermon where Jesus is teaching us that if we are going to become like him, then we need these religious practices in our lives. So he talks about giving, and he talks about praying, and he talks about fasting, and he doesn't say, if you do those things, he says, when. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. And so the way we've said it for these last few weeks is that we will not become like Jesus without spending time with God, and we will not spend time with God unless we make time for God. And so that means filling our lives with these righteous practices, not the way a hypocrite would, trying to fake love for God, to earn love for others. That was two weeks ago, but, but like somebody who has this secret, quiet life of pursuing God. And then last week we talked about fasting. I thought Tamarcus just did an incredible job leading us in that. He said a few things in there that I've just been... Uh, chewing on, no pun intended, for, for a whole week now. He said, fasting is a quiet revolution against the kingdom of this world that is just between you and God. And I thought that was so compelling that in our fasting, we can both feast on God and revolt against evil at the same time. And so we're continuing in that conversation and we get to, I don't know, maybe the most well-known passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. I mean, this is just such familiar language. You probably was, were able to to complete the sentences, even as, as Jill read it for us, I, I imagine you could right now complete these sentences. Our Father, I'm sorry, I should have set that up better. I'm, I'm counting on you to respond when I stop talking. <laughs> That's on me. Our Father, hallowed be thy kingdom come on earth. See, I think we're done here. Let's just pray and go to brunch. Uh, it's incredibly familiar. It's incredibly familiar. Not only that, but, but the content is familiar, the substance is familiar, but also the activity. Like what, what we just did and what this is, is it's a prayer, and most people pray. Um, you likely, in the last few months, have taken some time to pray and to talk to God. In fact, Barna did a study a few years ago, and it said 80% of American adults pray with some level of frequency, some more than others, and obviously many are praying to different objects and for different things, but of that 80%, I'm sure many of them know this prayer and many of them probably pray this prayer. And so it's familiar. And it's familiar because it's really special. There's so much density to this. There's so much content. There's so much depth to this prayer. There's something poetic about it. There's something that, that kind of harkens to transcendence, but also closeness. And all that's tied together. And so what I want to do this morning is we could easily spend an entire sermon series just on the Lord's Prayer. We're going to spend a Sunday on the Lord's Prayer. And I just want to ask a question about it. Really, I want to, uh, to observe about it that the prayer is given to us by Jesus for a very specific reason. Uh, there is a question that the prayer answers. There's a problem, if you will, that the prayer solves, and that is teed up for us in verses 7 and 8. Let me just tell you where we're going. Jesus teaches us to pray these words because this is what it sounds like to pray to a God who you know and to pray to a God who you believe knows you. The Lord's Prayer is Jesus teaching us to pray, to say things to God as if we know Him and as if He knows us. Verse 7 says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then verse 9 is going to say, pray then like this. Pray therefore like this. And so the prayer 
is the response of how to pray like someone who knows God, how to pray like somebody who is not a Gentile. So my, my mom is one of my favorite people. She's just one of my favorite people. She is the godliest woman I know. Uh, I adore her. We have a wonderful relationship. It hasn't always been like that, but the last 20 years of my life, it's been like that, and I treasure it. And because it's Mother's Day, I will call her today. Uh, well, I call her on other days that aren't Mother's Day, but especially because it's, I don't want to make all the moms mad. Um, because it's Mother's Day, I will especially make a point to call her today. And, and here's what I'm not going to do. When she answers the phone, I'm not just going to ramble on and on uh, and talk about all kinds of different things in hopes that I say something that means something to her. I'm not going to do that. I'm not just going to uh, talk and talk and talk, not knowing what she wants to hear and hope that some, at some point in my talking, she hears something where she's like, oh, my son loves me, right? Uh, I'm also not going to call her and talk to her about things that I know don't matter to her. Uh, like, I'm not going to call her and talk to her about politics because she just mostly doesn't care about that. Uh, I'm not going to call her and talk to her about the Dallas Cowboys because she gave up hope a long time ago on all that. Uh, and then I'm not going to call her and I especially won't call her and talk to her about things that I already know would upset her. Like, here's something that would upset my mom. Uh, I would never call her and complain about Carrie to her. I would not call her and complain about my wife. Mostly because there is absolutely nothing to complain about, okay? She's a member here. Um, but also because my mom, she sat me down and, and over and again she has made this clear uh, that she will only and always be a champion for our marriage. And I know that about her. Uh, she uh, supports us. She encourages unity between Carrie and I, and she encourages health and peace. And so she would not, while she's a gentle woman, she would not tolerate me calling her to speak ill of my wife because she wants good for us. And I'm pretty sure also because she likes Carrie more than she likes me, which, <laughs> which I get. If you've met Carrie that makes a lot of sense. And if you've met me, that makes a lot of sense. So that's not how the conversation is going to go today. I'm going to call her. I'm not just going to ramble, and I'm not going to talk about things she doesn't care about, and I'm not going to talk about things that I know that are going to upset her. I'm going to call, and I'm going to be very specific with my words. I'm going to tell her Happy Mother's Day. I'm going to tell her how much she means to me. I'm going to uh, tell her the last funny thing that her grandkids did because she loves hearing about that. I'm going to ask her about how church was and how her health is. I'll ask about my, my little brother and how he's doing and his sickness. And uh, I will tell her how she can pray for us. And that's how the conversation is going to go. And that's how most of our conversations go, right? I will speak to her based on what I know is true about her. I will speak to her like someone that I know, and I will speak to her like someone who I know knows me. And that conversation with her is filled with evidence of relationship where there's mutual knowledge of one another, and there's, and there's mutual um, time and history together. And this, friends, that is exactly what this prayer given by Jesus is intended to do. The question that the prayer answers is, what does it sound like? to talk to a God who we know and who knows us, to talk to God based on what we know about him and what he knows about us. And so the, the command is to pray these words because in praying these words, you are praying to God like you know him and like he knows you. This is what it sounds like 
to know God. And it's different than the way the Gentiles pray, which is what Jesus says. A Gentile was someone who believed in pagan gods and they believed about those pagan gods that those gods were fickle and they were impetuous and they didn't really know what those gods wanted. And, and the prayer that worked yesterday might not be the prayer that works today and the prayer that works today might not be the prayer that works tomorrow. And so what Jesus described is exactly how the pagans would pray. They would just multiply their words. They would talk and talk and talk. And it's not because they wanted to, they liked to hear themselves talk. It's because they didn't know what their God wanted to hear. They don't know what their God was like. And so they didn't know from one day to the next what would please that God. They don't know them. And so they, they don't know what, if they want to be called by a certain name. They don't know if that God is in a good mood or a bad mood. They don't know what that God wants. And so I don't know because I don't know all those things. I'm just going to ramble on and on in hopes that what I say lands. Ramble on and on in hopes that something I say connects with what that God wants to hear because I don't know them. And our God the God of the Old and New Testament, the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who holds all things together, he's not like that. Uh, he has revealed himself to us. And what we know about our God is he's not fickle. He's constant. He's not impetuous. He's steady and steadfast. And because he has made himself known, because he has revealed himself to us, he didn't just create a world and then let it spin and he doesn't interact with that world. No, he created a world and then he wrote himself into that world. And he gave us his word so that by his word, we would know what he's like. And what Jesus is saying is pray to God like you know what to say because he has revealed what he wants. He has revealed who he is. Uh, there's a scene from the Old Testament that, that really just draws these two ways of praying out. Someone who doesn't know God and what they sound like versus someone who does. It's 1 Kings 18, it's Elijah on Mount Carmel and you've got Elijah versus 450 prophets of Baal and they're trying to decide whose God is the one true God. And so these 450 prophets of Baal, these 450 Gentiles, um, it, it describes their prayer this way. It says they pray to Baal to try to get Baal to respond and it says they pray from morning till evening. Verse 29 describes their prayer as frantic prophesying. They don't know what to say. They don't know what their God wants. They don't know who their God is. And so they talk and talk and talk. They rave and they ramble. And then when their words don't work, they do something that's really sad. They mutilate themselves. They cut themselves because they think, well, maybe our God wants our blood. Maybe Baal wants us to bleed and that's what's going to please him. Would you hold on to that idea? False gods, friend, always make you bleed. False gods will always hurt you. They will never hurt for you. And so the prophets of Baal, they have no idea how to talk to their God. They don't know him. They don't know what he wants. So they just throw up words. They just ramble and ramble and ramble. And then they get so tired and maybe they bleed out and they stop and it's Elijah's turn. And here's what Elijah does. He steps up and he just whispers a few sentences to God. He says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I'm your servant. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. It's a prayer that is filled with intimate knowledge of who that God is and what that God wants as he just whispers a few sentences, that's it. No rambling, no frantic prayers, just speech to God filled with knowledge of God because we are not the people who believe in an unknown God but in one who has revealed himself. So hear me, hear me. What do you say to God when you pray? What do your prayers sound like? What do you lead with when you talk to God? What's most pressing on your heart? And do your, if you were to think about your prayers, and maybe it was a long time ago that you did that, or maybe it was this morning where you're like, God, if you don't help us get to church, it's not going to happen. I don't know what that prayer sounded like, but, but in those prayers, does it reveal this God? 
Do your prayers demonstrate that you are praying to a God who you know and praying to a God who knows you? And you say, Jamin, well, what, what would that sound like to pray to God like that? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's what it sounds like. There are five elements to that prayer I want us to walk through. Uh, That prayer, the prayer that knows God, it tells God five things. It tells him who he is, where he is, what he's worth, what he wants, and what we need. Let me show you what that looks like. If you were to write that in your Bible around that prayer, it would look like this. Who he is, where he is, what he's worth, what he wants, and what we need. Who he is, our Father. Where he is, in heaven. What he's worth, hallowed be your name. What he wants, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then what we need is everything else. We'll take those in turn. When you pray, Jesus says, start by telling God. When you pray to the God that you know and who knows you, tell him that he's your Father. You start your prayer by defining the relationship and by defining who God is to you. You pray to him, Father. Now, that word is filled with all kinds of connotation, is it not? You and I, everyone in the room is going to have a lean with the word Father, and that lean is going to likely be based on the kind of Father you do or don't have on earth. That lean is going to be based on the kind of Father you did or didn't have on earth, and so Calling God Father might be complicated for you. might not sound like a good thing to you. And so hear this. Next Sunday, next Sunday in our sermon, we will give all of our time looking at that. All of our time next Sunday will be the portrait that Jesus gives us of God as Father. And here's why. In the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that Jesus preaches, he refers to God as Father 17 times. It is the largest concentration of reference to God as Father in the entire Bible. And what it says is so encouraging, and what it says is so true, it's worth giving all of our time to looking at that in the, in the scope of the sermon. So we'll save most of it for next week, but let me just point out to you this. Jesus is saying, when you pray to the God that you know and who knows you, there's a name that you call him. There's a way that you address him, Father. That's who I'm talking to. It's not my boss, not my servant. I'm not praying to some sort of distant deity. When you talk to him, tell him who he is to you, Father, every single time. Friends, how easy is it to believe that, especially when we talk to God, especially in our prayers, especially if you're by yourself and you're self-aware and you're honest, how easy is it to believe that the relationship with God has changed based on how our life has been lived up until that moment of praying? It's like, okay, if I'm about to pray and what the last few days have looked like or what the last few weeks have looked like is that I have failed and I have sinned, then maybe God has retreated from me and so I'm going to start the prayer and say, distant God in heaven. Or maybe I haven't prayed in a while and I think that God's the kind of God that's going to be really mad about that and so I'm going to start the prayer by naming the relationship angry God in heaven. Or maybe I'm overwhelmed with sorrow and sadness and I'm hurting and I feel like God's been silent in that hurt, and so I'm going to pray, and I'm going to define the relationship, apathetic God in heaven. And what Jesus says is every single time you bow your head, every single time you close your eyes, call him Father, who he is to you. Name that relationship, beginning with God as Father. What that is, friends, is it's a statement of faith. It's saying that I am praying to a God, and what I believe is that he is who he is to me, and that's not based on my performance, and that's not based on my circumstances. It's just who he always is. 
Because if I believe in God, if I have been uh, bought by the blood of Jesus, my brother, then I have been irrevocably secured in a familial relationship with God as Father. And nothing I do can ever change that. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of our Father in and through Jesus. And so, not only that, who gives us permission to call Him Father? The Son. The only begotten of the Father, Jesus our Lord, he, he serves us as a big brother in this and says, when you talk to God, talk to my Father and call him your Father because that's who he is. So if you're coming in prayer with an anxious heart, call him Father. If you're coming in prayer full of life and hope, call him Father. If you're coming overwhelmed with sorrow, call him Father. If you're coming after years of silence, Call him Father. If you're praying after egregious sin and everything you never thought you'd do, you've done, and you're going to pray to God and ask for help, don't start with your sin. Start by saying who he is to you. He's a father to you. That's who he is. If you're praying unsure if he even hears you and if he's even there, call him Father. It's an act of faith. More on that next week. Where he is, he's in heaven. Uh, heaven's a loaded term, especially in this part of the world. We'll come back to that idea in a few minutes, but what it means that God is in heaven. So who he is is Father, where he is is in heaven, and what that means is he is in complete control, complete control. Uh, heaven, as one commentator put it, is the command room of earth. Praying to God in heaven is, is, is declaring that God is in the oval office of the universe, if you will. If telling him who he is as Father speaks to his closeness to us, in relationship to us, telling him where he is in heaven speaks to his power in fact, Psalm 2 draws us out. It says the kings of the earth, they plot and they toil and it's all in vain. Verse 4 says, the one enthroned in the heavens laughs. The one who's in the place of actual power, not perceived power. The one who's in the place of actual control, not temporary control. He looks down at the kings of the earth fighting over whatever they're fighting for. And it's a joke to the one who's enthroned in heaven because he's transcendent. He is uh, altogether other than who we are. Him being in heaven, listen, it's really good news. It means he's not bound by the limits and frailties of earth. God's not frail like we are. Uh, we are created. God was and is and always will be. And it means that anytime we pray, the mess that might be besetting our life is not a mess for God. The things that might be weighing us down, we, when we pray, I don't have to wonder, is God anxious today? No, he's in heaven today. Is God overwhelmed today? No, he's in heaven today. It also says this. It also speaks to, and, and, and hear me, our Father, there's a closeness, there's an intimacy there. In heaven is the other side of the pendulum. There's a transcendence there. There's a might there. Um, you'll know this. Anytime anyone from heaven shows up in the Bible, what's the response? Fear. If it's an angel that shows up and it's Mary or it's the shepherds or something like that, it says they tremble. And it's not because those who came from heaven were dangerous it's just because they're so different and so powerful and so altogether larger and holier. And if that's true about the messengers that come from heaven, how much more true about the one enthroned in heaven? That there is something about God that is just holy and frightening. Again, not in a dangerous way. In fact, um, I think the best portrait of this comes from Lewis. Uh, we've read all of the uh, Chronicles of Narnia books to our kids because we want them to be popular obviously. Um, and there's a scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Lucy, one of the characters, she figures out that Aslan, the Christ figure, is a lion. And she's a little girl, and so she's scared, and she asks a question about him. 
Is he safe? And the character responds back. It's beautiful. He says, he's not safe, but he is good. And there's something about the tension of those two characters. He's not safe, but he is good. And Jesus says, when you pray, remember there's a closeness. You're talking to your father. That's who he is to you. But also, he's in heaven. There's something transcendent about him. There's something to be reminded that he's not one to be trifled with. He's not one to be taken lightly. In fact, friends, as a pastor, can I just share this with you? I just believe that so much of our struggles of faith come down to a failure to believe one of these first two lines of the prayer. So much of our struggle come down to a failure to believe that he's not father to us. He's not as close as he is or to believe he's not in heaven, meaning he's not as powerful as he is. He's not as holy as he is. And Jesus says, when you pray, declare both because you need to know both about your God, that he is father and he's in heaven. That's where he is, what he's worth, goodness. Hallow be your name. Uh, unless you prayed this prayer out loud this week, you did not use the word hallowed. I'm just willing to bet that that's not part of your vocabulary. It's an old word. It's a bit of a dated word. And yet, most of the English translations of the Bible still use that word in this prayer. Can I tell you why? There's not a better one. It's a word that's so packed with meaning that we just don't have a better word in the English language. That word hallowed combines two ideas, and, and along with the idea of name. A name is all the sum total of someone is their name for, for the Bible. It's uh, their story and their character and their power and their influence. And so when we say, hallowed be thy name, hallowed is a combination of two things. Something is sacred and something is ultimate. There's a sacredness to it. There's a holiness to it. And then there's a supremacy to it. That's what it means to hallow something. To hallow something is to say not only is it special, not only is it sacred, but there is something about it that's supreme. And that's what we're saying to God. Hallowed be your name. This is the part of the prayer where you're just worshiping God. What does it sound like to pray to a God who you know and who knows you at some point? If you know that God at some point, you have to worship him. It's the, only, it's the most right response. It's where we're just saying, you and you alone, God, are sacred and ultimate. There is no one like you, God. This is the part where we're just adoring God in prayer because he is worthy of adoration and praise. And so can I ask you a question? When you pray, if you pray, do you ever in your prayers just, just tell God how wonderful he is? Do you ever in your prayers just Take time to just worship him. Or to take it further, Jesus before this says, when you pray, go into your room and pray in secret. Is there any part of your life where you're all alone and what you're doing all by yourself is praising God? All by yourself, just worshiping God. The one whose name is hallowed, the one who is sacred and ultimate. Is there any of that in your prayers? Friend, if adoration for God is missing from your prayers, it's because it's missing from your life. If adoration for God is missing from your prayers, it's because it's missing from your life. For too many of us, for too many of us, and this is a unique problem in our part of the world, in Plano, Texas, in Collin County, America, for too many of us, we do not hollow God with our mouths because we have hallowed something else in our hearts. 
And if it's what we believe is sacred and ultimate, and if we're being honest, what we'd have to confess is we have hallowed our jobs, or we have hallowed this life that we've built, or we've hallowed our kids, or our family, or we've hallowed some sort of secret life, or secret relationship, or we've hallowed our dreams for the future, or we've hallowed our bank accounts, and it's what is most sacred and ultimate to us. And so what often happens is, if prayer is part of our life at all, it is only part of our lives when something else other than God that we've hallowed is threatened. And here's how it happens. It's always a scrambling back to God when we need his help, right? Like a, so the job is, is threatened. Money feels shaky right now and tight and life is uncomfortable and then we get desperate so we turn to God for help but really that's just to ask him to help us keep hallowing in our lives what doesn't deserve our worship. Sometimes we say, man, I, I pray and nothing happens. Or we say, man, I, you know, I pray and I just don't feel anything. Maybe, maybe that's because we're praying to a God that we have failed to worship as ultimate in our life. We are asking that God to help us hallow what's not him in our life. And that God has no interest in supporting our idolatry. None, no interest. Maybe his silence, friend, maybe what he feels like distance is a loving God trying to get us to pay attention that we've hallowed something that's not him. And maybe it's him trying to get us to pay attention because he loves us. Because here's what's true. Please hear this. When you hallow what's not him, it will hurt you. When you hallow, it always hurts. Remember the prophets of Baal. False gods always make you bleed. They won't bleed. For, they always hurt you. But our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he does not require your blood. He sends his son to offer his own. He's the only God, the one and only God that won't make you bleed, but will bleed for you. Hallow his name. There's none like him. There's none who does selfless and sacrificial and full of mercy. And what does that kind of God, the kind of I will bleed for you, you don't have to bleed for me, God, what does he deserve? Your worship. Your worship. To say to him, he is holy, to pray like David prays, to speak adoration. You alone are my portion of my cup. I desire nothing on earth beside you. I will magnify your name in all the earth. And so see Jesus here. He's saying, would you build into every conversation with God? Idolatry is such a pull on the heart of every man and every woman and every human. Would you build into your conversation with God, telling him over and again that he and he alone is worthy of your worship and he alone worthy of your obedience and affection. And so in this prayer, when I say, hallowed be your name, I am laying before his feet everything in my life and saying, take it. It's yours. And if, and if I lose all of this and have you, I have everything I need. Hallowed be your name. You are worthy of my worship. And I'm going to pray over and again, hallowed be your name as a way to war against the idolatry in my heart and as a way to plead with God that he would reorient my loves around him who alone is worthy of my ultimate love because he and he alone is worth it. That's what he's worth and then what he wants. Who he is, where he is, what he's worth, what he wants. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This line is, is telling him what his heart already is for the world. What does God want to do in the world? That. What does God want to use you to do in the world? That. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does God want me to want? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this confronts, friends, a really common misunderstanding of what we believe, uh, some of us at least. Some believe um, or at least live as if Christianity is simply an afterlife religion and not an all-of-life religion. 
And to be fair, it's because what some of us were sold living in this part of the world. Some of us were sold that Christianity is about going to heaven when you die. And so we've got that covered because of Jesus, and maybe we walked an aisle or something like that. And so now uh, God is in heaven, and heaven's where you go when you die. And, and really, I don't know how to make much sense of life now, other than that, like, it's up to me, and it doesn't really matter. And that's a misunderstanding, not just a misunderstanding of, of the story of the Bible, but a misunderstanding of what heaven is. Like, even, this is a bit of a dated saying. I, I grew up in church, so this is familiar to me. Maybe you've never heard it before. But that saying about someone that they're so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, have you heard that? I think Johnny Cash sings a song with those lyrics in it, actually. Um, that is only a problem, to be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. That is only a problem for people who don't understand heaven and don't understand what heaven wants. To be heavenly-minded is to be good for the world because heaven's goodness and purpose and will is aimed at earth for the good of earth. Uh, John Piper made a few comments about that saying that are worth sharing. He said, I guess it's possible to be so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly use my problem is I've never met one of those people. And I suspect if I met one, the problem would not be that his mind is full of the glories of heaven, but that his mind is empty and his mouth is full of platitudes. Very Piper quote. If there is anything, friend, this is it for me, friends. You know this. This is it. It's what I hope, if there's a prayer that God would answer, it's use me, use our church, that there would be something of the world around us that looks more like heaven because we were here, and there will be something of the earth that misses heaven if we weren't. Like I have said this for two years now, the story of Christianity, the point of Christianity is not going to heaven when you die, and heaven's not the end of the story. The movement of Christianity is not earth to heaven. The movement is heaven to earth. And the story is about a God who created a beautiful world, heaven and earth completely united, where, where earth and heaven were one, and God and his people were one, and sin and evil and Satan enter that world and fracture that union between God and his people and fracture that union between heaven and earth. And then that God response, full of love, is so committed to that world that he covenants to bring heaven back to earth. And he covenants to love unconditionally. And he's so committed to that that he sent his son to live on earth to defeat sin and death by dying and rising. And one day his son will return glorious to reunite heaven and earth as one new, eternal, imperishable, beautiful, glory-filled existence that forever and ever will enjoy the very presence of God in perfect peace in a Satan-free, sin-free, sadness-free kingdom that has no end. It goes on and on and on. And that's what God is about. That. Do you want to know what God wants? He wants heaven to come to earth. He wants his kingdom that both is and is to come to be made manifest in fullness so that the glory of God rings over all of creation. What does he want you to want? That. He wants you to exhaust your life to that end, where you work, where you live, in your relationships. And so to say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is to say to God, not only do I know what you want, but God, I at least, I at least am trying to get there myself. I'm trying to get to a place where I want what you want. And so a good question to ask about your prayers, like if you're praying to a God who knows you and who you know, a good question to ask is, if God answered all my prayers, would those answers build his kingdom or mine? If God were to answer all of the prayers that I've been praying for the last month, would I look around and see more heaven on earth or would I just see more of me on earth? 
are more the things that I want on earth. And there's a cost that comes with that. What that means is maybe in the quiet of our heart, what we want is we actually want to be king and we want this to be our kingdom. And I'm not king and you're not king and this is not my kingdom and it's not your kingdom. And that's actually really freeing because what happens when we try to build our kingdom is we realize I don't have what it takes to hold all this together and we already have someone who does. We already know someone. He holds all things together by the word of his power. And so the sooner that we abandon that empty pursuit of building our own kingdom and submit our lives to wanting what God wants, the more free we are in life and the more at peace we are in life. And so Jesus says, when you pray to the God you know, say, God, I want what you want, or I at least want to want what you want, God. Your kingdom come. And then last, what I need. See something. We have said a lot about God before we've talked about us right? So we've said who he is, where he is, what he's worth, and what he wants. And then we get to our needs. And that's by design. Jesus says, if you know God, if you know the real God, and that God knows you, you don't lead out with what you need for you. You lead out with what you know about him. You know why? Because after you've declared what is true about him, that's going to shape what we ask for from him. It has to. If you have said who he is, where he is, what he's worth, what he wants, by the time you get to you, priorities have changed. Or at least by the time we get to you, those priorities have been crystallized. Like after saying all that, you're probably not going to ask him to give you a bunch of cars. Probably. You're, you're probably not going to ask him for abs. I don't know, right? What you ask for will correspond to what you've declared. And so then he says, if you believe this, if you believe he's father, if you believe he's in heaven, if you believe he's, he is ultimate and sacred, and, and the one and only one worthy of your ultimate worship. And if you believe that what he ultimately wants is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you know what you're going to need for that? You know what you're going to need to live in that God's world? You're going to need daily bread and daily grace and daily help. That's what we'll ask for. And we can build it out. We can make our petitions known to him. We can be honest with him about hurts and, and look at the Psalms and look at the way that God's people have prayed and it's been recorded for us. But ultimately to pray to that God that we know, it means what we're going to need because of what we know about him and what he knows about us is we're going to need daily bread and daily grace and daily help. Daily bread is just asking that God would provide for our needs, what we need to survive. Daily grace is, is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debts. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And so this is confession. Jesus, hear this, Jesus assumes and believes that we will be in regular need of confession and forgiveness. How encouraging is that? It's not a surprise to God that we're going to sin and need to ask for forgiveness, right? Jesus says you're going to need to ask for grace. Obedience is hard. Your flesh is weak, and he gets that. And so you will over and again need to ask for forgiveness, and you'll need to ask for grace. So friend, look, we should not be surprised by our sin, and we should not be shy about our struggles. But Jesus has said what you're going to, he would not have taught us to ask for forgiveness if he didn't know we would need it. So what it doesn't say is, and if you sin, you need to go up and question whether or not he's your father. He doesn't say, if you sin, you might not even need to be praying this prayer at all. This is the prayer for sinful people and no one else. It's the prayer to pray for those who are going to be in daily need of God's grace. Not just that, but we need daily grace for others. Jesus is just so honest and realistic about life. I wonder how many times you go to pray and, and God brings a relationship to mind that's not going well or brings hurt to mind that someone has committed against you. 
And Jesus says relationships are hard and people can be awful and we hurt one another. But if we are the people who are serious about being a picture of heaven on earth, one of the most powerful ways to do that is by being a forgiving people. Why? Because when we are a forgiving people, it shows the world that we believe we're a forgiven people. And a forgiven people forgive. That's what verse 14 is all about. If you've been forgiven by your father, how could you not forgive? So we're going to ask for daily grace, and then we're going to ask for daily help. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's this declaration that we know how this ends. Like sin is strong, the power of evil is strong, but God is stronger. He's already won. And so those are the needs. That's you saying what you need. It's what I need. But see this with me, and then we'll, we're going to pray together. Um, these asks come in a context. Us making our needs known to God. Like, this struck me this week, and I just can't shake it. Jesus teaches us to pray, but he teaches us to pray in a way that before we ask for what we need, we've been reminded of what we have, who he is, where he is, what he's worth, what he wants. So the greatest needs that we could have in life have already been met. Like, the greatest need you have is for love, not a cheap love, not a conditional love. The greatest need you have is to believe that someone can see exactly who you are, who can see you, the unfiltered version of you, maybe the you that only you know about. And what you need is you need to believe that there's someone who can see you completely exposed and unadorned and love you still. How does the prayer start? Father, the kind of father that can love that kind of you. We need security in life. We need to know that we're going to be okay well, where is God? He's in heaven. The commander, he controls all things, sovereign over all things. So before I say, give me this day my daily bread, I've declared that God is in complete control. He has all resources and he loves me. Not only that, but before I ask for what I need today, I have already hallowed his name. So my worship comes before my request. Adoration comes before answers from him. And that's a sign to God that I am going to worship a God before I make my needs known because I don't worship him because he gives me things. I worship him because he's given me himself. And he's worthy to be hallowed. I need hope that this broken world is not the end of the story. And I need hope that my broken heart is not who I'll be forever. And I have already prayed your kingdom come, your will be done. And God is going to secure that and finish that. And so before I ask, uh, don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil, I have already declared that the kingdom that is free of temptation, the kingdom that has conquered and is conquering and one day will once and for all defeat the kingdom of darkness, it's on its way. And so before I have made my needs known to God, before I have asked for what I need and telling God who he is, I have been reminded of all that I have. And so I'm going to make my daily needs known to God, but I'm going to hedge those daily needs around eternal truths, things that won't change, things about God that will always be the same. Do you know God? Do you know him? Do you believe that there is a God who knows you? If you do, if you know him, if you believe he knows you, this is how you'll talk to him. You'll tell him who he is. You'll tell him where he is. You'll tell him what he's worth. You'll tell him what he wants. And then you'll make your needs known to him. Let's do that together, friends. Would you pray with me? Uh, as you settle and prepare to pray, we just love for us collectively to pray through this prayer together. I, I want church, we are this, and I hope that we continue to be this. I don't, 
especially Sunday mornings. I don't want to be a, a people who sit and observe. I want to be a people who receive and respond. And so we have received from God, and now it's time to respond to him. Would you pray this prayer with me? Would you just tell him now that he's your father? Just where you're at, I'll give you space. Would you pray to him? Tell him who he is. Now, would you tell him, just you and him talking, would you tell him where he is? Tell him he's in heaven. Not that he doesn't know, but so that your heart can remember in conversation with him that he is in control over all things. Tell him what he's worth. Hallowed be your name, O God. Would you praise him and maybe in that praising of him confess, I have not hallowed you in my life. There's something else that's sacred and ultimate for me and I repent and I lay idols at your feet and I worship and praise you, God. You alone are worthy. Would you tell him what he's worth? Tell him what he wants, what he's doing. Be reminded now of the good work that our God is doing in a broken world. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And maybe you'd add on to that, God, I want what you want. Help me. Tell him what you need. Is there a provision you need right now? Daily bread. Maybe that's a healing for sickness in your life. Maybe that's resources. Daily grace, would you confess sin? It's grace that you need because of sin that you've committed. Or maybe it's grace that you need to be able to offer to someone who is seeking forgiveness from you. Daily help to resist temptation, to overcome evil, that we would be numbered among those who overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Help us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.